You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to Genesis chapter 15. Just getting over a uh, a sore throat, so if you hear extra grunts and things like that, forgive me for that. Genesis 15. So, when you've been a pastor for a while you begin to see certain patterns in regards to things that Christians struggle with. And there's one particular battle that I'm more regularly seeing believers deal with, and it has to do with the issue of assurance. Uh, Sometimes Christians look at the Scriptures, and they see all of these amazing promises, and, and honestly, sometimes it seems too good to be true. And we crave assurance. And we wonder, how can I know for sure that God's promises Uh, to provide for me will actually come to pass? How can I know for sure that that He really is for me and not against me as He has promised? How can I be assured of of God's blessing in my life? How can I know that God is actually working together all things in my life for good, especially uh, when at least outwardly it doesn't look like things are moving in a good direction? And sometimes this need for assurance revolves around assurance of salvation. Uh, the promise of salvation. Yes, I, I know, uh, God, you said all who call on your name will be saved, and I know Jesus said He is preparing a place for His people, but Lord, I still sin. Uh, my faith is weak. Uh, yes, I, I've called on His name, but, but, but how can I know that God will finish the job and that these promises will come true for me? If you've ever dealt with those kinds of struggles and, and insecurities, you may be surprised to discover, discover that Abram, a man whom the Bible holds up as one who is exemplary in faith, who's called the father of those who believe, he too went through periods where he craved additional assurance to help him more firmly believe in the promises of God. Abram was given incredible promises, wasn't he? Promises of, of offspring of a land, that from his offspring in that land would come blessing and salvation for the whole world. And we discovered last week, um, uh, we discovered that the, the promise to Abram was actually a gospel promise, a promise about Christ. Galatians chapter 3 tells us that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you, all the nations, shall be blessed. And if you look at verse 6 of Genesis 15, you see Abram's response to the gospel. What was his response to the gospel? It says, and he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. And so we saw last week uh, the first explicit reference in the Bible to the great doctrine of justification by faith. Uh, That sinful man, though deserving of God's judgment, is made right with God through faith. Uh, not by good deeds, not by being religious, not by His own inherent goodness, because by nature we aren't good. Uh, We're saved by trusting in God's gospel promises. 
And New Testament believers like you and me are saved by looking back by faith to the cross and Jesus' work there and trusting in Him. And when we do that, we find that our sin has been paid by Him on the cross. Uh, Jesus took our place, took our sin, and was punished in our stead. And we receive as a gift of God the righteousness of Jesus, which unlike our own righteousness, is perfect and acceptable to God. And so we can enter into a right relationship with God now and forevermore. And while we look back by faith to the work of Christ, Old Testament believers like Abram were saved by looking ahead by faith to the Savior to come, trusting that He would bring salvation. And so in verse 6, Abram believes the gospel. God counts Abram as righteous. And so Abram goes on happily ever after with no more problems and no more struggles and no more questions, right? Wrong! as I hope you've been discovering through this study of the life of Abram, uh, is, is that this great man of faith, he's actually an ordinary guy. He's an ordinary person. He's just like you. He's not perfect. He, he has questions. He, he struggles. Sometimes little doubts creep in. Some, sometimes he even acts out of blatant unbelief. We've already seen that a couple of chapters ago. We're going to see it again in the next chapter. He's just like us, and that should actually encourage us, because as we see God's patience and gentleness and commitment to Abram, it's really a reflection of God's kindness to all of His weak and struggling saints. And through God's dealings with Abram in chapter 15, we discover the answer to two great questions. The first was uh, was, uh, answered last week. How can man be made right with God? The answer, through faith in his gospel promises. And the second half of chapter 15 answers the other great and urgent question, how can man stay right with God? How can we know that God will finish the job? Uh, If you struggle with assurance, know that I was praying for you as I was preparing this sermon, and I hope today we'll answer that prayer and you'll experience a major breakthrough. So let's get some help now from God. Uh, Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence and respect for the reading and for the hearing of the words of our great God. This is Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to start at verse 7 and read on down through the end of the chapter. Word of God says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, 
Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let's pray. Father in heaven, my prayer is that you will help me to rightly divide the word of truth, that you would help my brothers and sisters to rightly hear the word of truth, and above all else, I pray that you will show us Christ. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So there are different ways here that God is going to give Abram assurance, and one of the first ways that God gives Abram assurance here is, is to remind Abram that God sovereignly saves with a sovereign purpose. Now, the first half of Genesis 15 that we looked at last week deals with God's assurance to Abram regarding the promise of offspring. But there's another important aspect uh, of the promise, and it's the promise of land. If the offspring are going to be a great nation, they have to have a land to dwell in, right? Hence God's declaration in verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, verse 7 has the ring of a common introductory formula found in ancient Near Eastern documents. It's a, it's a royal proclamation. It's a royal grant. And these grants would always begin with the overlord, the king, making a proclamation of, of who he is and an announcement of the generous things that he has done for the vassal, for the servant, followed by stipulations of a covenant bond, uh, an agreement between the king and the servant. You're going to see exactly the same thing in Exodus chapter 20. After God rescues Israel from slavery, He comes to them, and He introduces His covenant with them by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then it goes on to talk about the, the covenant that God makes with Israel. So, exactly the same kind of introduction is here in uh, Genesis 15, 7. So, we have here the king of the universe, God, reminding Abram of who he is, I am the Lord, and what he has done, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, notice a couple of things in this statement. It really proclaims the complete and utter sovereignty of God. I brought you out of Ur, Abram. I did it. In other words, God is essentially saying that God is the author of Abram's election, of Abram's salvation. You didn't ask for this, Abram. You didn't sign up for this. You didn't approach me as a volunteer. You were lost in darkness. You were in paganism. You were worshiping a false moon god on your way to judgment and destruction. But I came in, and I rescued you from that old life, and I brought you up out of it without your help. This wasn't your idea. I chose you. I saved you. And God's announcement to Abram is meant to rivet Abram's attention back towards God's sovereign, amazing grace. And by the way, for any of us struggling with assurance, that's really the first place that we need to put our eyes on, right? Uh, We doubt because our eyes often are on ourselves and not on God. Uh, But the Scriptures are helpful because they always remind us that the reason we are now God's people isn't because of our work for God, but it's because of His work for us. If you're here this morning as a Christian, 
First Peter one or First Peter two nine says that God brought you out of darkness. Uh, Colossians chapter one says He delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of Christ. Now a lot of times people, even Christians, push back against the doctrine of God's sovereign election of those He saves. We like to think, well, surely I contributed something to my salvation. And I like to respond, you did contribute something to your salvation, your sin and your guilt. That was your part. God's part was rescuing you and delivering you from that old life. There you go. That was your part. People don't like that. That's what God did for Abram. But more than that, God didn't save Abram for nothing. Uh, he, he didn't bring Abram out of Ur for no purpose, just to kind of wander around and for Abram to try to make something meaningful of his life in his own way. No, no, no. God brought Abram out of his old life for a very specific purpose. God says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. God has plans for Abram. God has a purpose for Abram. Do you know God has a purpose for everybody that he redeems, including you? You know that God has a purpose for you? What's God's purpose for you? Why did he save you? Romans 8.29 says, for those whom he foreknew, that's y'all, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. One purpose that God has for you in redeeming you is that He might shape you to look like Jesus. Now, if God has a purpose for those that He saves, and if He is sovereign over the one that He saves, that should give us incredible assurance. Uh, because the Scriptures say that because God is sovereign, He does all that He pleases. Our God is in the heavens, the psalmist says. He does all that He pleases. He does anything that He wants to do. Nothing can thwart His purposes. So, verse 7 alone should give Abram incredible assurance. I'm God, I'm the sovereign one, I'm doing this, and I've got a purpose for you. I'm going to give you this land. That should give him amazing assurance. But Abram is still struggling. Right after God reminds Abram of his sovereign purpose, look at verse 8. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And some of you are frustrated with Abram. Come on, man, get with, the, get with the program. Don't be too hard on Abram. You're like that. I'm like that with God. It's easy for us to judge him, but, but, but put yourself in Abram's sandals. I mean, he has received some pretty far-out promises from God. You're, you're old and your wife is infertile and you're going to have a baby. As a matter of fact, you're, you're going to have offspring that are like limitless virtually, like the stars in the heavens. And then the other promise is, is almost as impossible. Abram is in Canaan. Uh, he does not own one speck of dust of that land. And he's surrounded by a bunch of other groups that do not own the land. You've got a list of them at the end of that chapter. And, and many of these groups are very hostile, very dangerous. We saw in chapter 14 that Abram has 318 men. That's it. And so you can see why Abram may be struggling a little bit here and wondering how all this is going to add up, and he wants some assurance. And what I wanna, want you to remember here is that Abram is a believer. He believes the gospel. 
Sometimes Christians who desire assurance get very scared about that because they think that maybe that means I'm not really a Christian. Maybe it means I really don't have faith because if I did, I wouldn't be looking for assurance. I wouldn't be asking these, these kinds of questions. I don't, I don't have any faith, and if I don't have faith, I'm not saved, and then they, they kind of go into this tailspin. But there is a kind of struggle and a kind of questioning that is not a sign of rank, hard-hearted unbelief. John Calvin writes that Abram's questioning with God is rather a proof of faith. Calvin goes on to to write that the, the wicked, because their minds are entangled with various conflicting thoughts, do not in any way receive the promises. But the pious, who feel the impediments in their flesh, in other words, who feel their weaknesses, endeavor to remove them, lest they should obstruct the way to God's Word, and they seek a remedy for those evils of which they are conscious. I think that's right. Abram's faith is not perfect, but Abram's faith is present even in this dialogue between he and God. He is like that man who pleaded with Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I need some help. To ask for increased faith is an act of faith itself. And notice how gentle God will be with Abram. He, he doesn't rebuke Abram. He's not harsh with Abram. And again, Calvin writes that the Lord sometimes concedes to His children that they may freely express any objection which comes into their mind, for He does not act so strictly with them as not to suffer Himself to be questioned. God can handle our questions. God can handle our concerns, and to lay those burdens at God's feet with humility and honesty can in itself be a sign of faith. And so, God now will concede to Abram and give him help. And we find that God's answer for assurance is a covenant. Abram asks, how will I know? And God's response is, bring me a heifer. Okay. For modern Western people, that answer is perhaps the most unusual answer to a question in the whole Bible. Abram has all these concerns, all these questions. He cries out in desperation, how will I know, God? God says, bring me a heifer. Huh? What kind of answer is that? Is that an answer? It is. In fact, notice how God's response is not confusing to Abram at all. It may be confusing to you, but it's not confusing to Abram. God says, bring me a heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. And Abram, who has been filled with questions this whole chapter, he shuts up and he obeys, without question. Abram seems to know what is going on right now. Not only does he know what is going on as he gathers these animals, he also knows what to do with them. He doesn't need to be told. Verse 10, and he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. It's probably because the birds are too small. So I want you to imagine this. This is, this is a pretty graphic, gruesome thing that's going on here. It's meant to be gruesome. I mean, you think about it. You cut an animal in half, and what do you got? You got a bloody, gory mess. You got blood, and you got organs, and you've got entrails, and the ground is becoming soaked and turning red. And what Abram has done here is he's made a very gruesome and bloody pathway 
You've got, you got a, a line full of butchered, bloody animal parts on one side, and then you've got another gruesome uh, line of animal bloody, part, bloody animal parts on the other side. You've got this very gory pathway. And you're wondering, how in the world is this answering Abram's question, how will I know? What you're seeing here is the creation of a covenant. A covenant is a promise. But, but, it, but more than that, it has a, a kind of legal binding force with consequences if it's broken. Now today, when we have two parties joining into a binding and legal agreement, how do we ratify that contract? What's the normal way we do that? Right? You're John Hancock. You're, you're, your signature, we sign paper, we put our name on the line. Uh, we do that when we're getting married or we're buying houses or we're entering into a business deal. Uh, it's more than a promise. Uh, to put your name on the line is to understand that if one party reneges, if one party breaks the terms, there's going to be some consequences. Well, in the ancient Near East, they did contracts a little differently. Say, for example, you had two equal parties entering into an agreement. Uh, then both of these people would walk together through the bloody animal pathway uh, and the idea that they are essentially declaring is if I break my part of the deal, if I break covenant, what happens to those animals, may those things happen to me if I renege. May I be cursed with a gruesome and bloody death if I'm not faithful to this covenant. It's called an oath of self-malediction. It's the opposite of benediction. You know what a benediction is? We do it at the end of the service. I give a benediction. A benediction is a good word. Malediction is a bad word. It's the most solemn of oaths. Aren't you glad we use pen and paper today? We actually do understand a little something of this kind of oath in our modern world. At least kids do. Uh, when you've got one kid telling another kid something and nobody believes him, uh, what does he do to communicate that he really means this? He says, cross my heart and what? Hope to die. That's a self-maledictory oath. Kids, remember that. Add that to your vocabulary. Now, going back to the ancient world, this kind of covenant ceremony didn't just happen between equal parties, but also in the striking of an agreement between a king, an overlord, and his vassals his servants, the people whom he has conquered. And he would have his servants alone walk that bloody pathway in between the animal pieces. And the message from the king to that servant is, if you remain loyal to me and obey me and follow me, I'll provide you with provision and protection and reward and blessing. But if you rebel against me, May it be done to you as it has been done to these slaughtered animals. May you be butchered, and may your blood be spilled out on the ground. Now, it was pretty rough times back then, so I'm sure in some cases this was more than symbolic. <laughs> it probably actually did happen, literally. And the person who's walking through those pieces, he's agreeing to that. He's saying, yes, may it be done to me if I do not follow and obey you. When God tells Abram to bring him these animals, Abram knows what's going on. He knows what to do. He, he knows that a covenant is, is about to be made. But you can imagine Abram feeling a sense of trepidation. Because who's the overlord in this situation? God is. And who's the vassal? 
Abram. He's the servant. So now Abram is preparing for this covenant ceremony. He's he's arranged these animal carcasses. Now he's waiting. He's waiting for his master, his overlord, to show up. And, And it's taking a while for this to happen. Because we see in verse 11, when birds of prey come down on the carcasses, Abram drives them away. Every time a bird, birds come, he shoes them away. They come again, he shoes them away. This is a lot of work. Abram knows the significance of what's coming. He, he does not want these birds of prey ruining this. On some level, it seems like perhaps Abram feels like he's got to protect the promise, got to protect the, what God is, is doing. Birds come and he drives them away. And at some point, maybe Abram is thinking, where is God? I'm doing everything here. I got the animals, I cut them up, I arranged them to make this bloody path, and now I'm continually protecting this arrangement from birds. I, I don't think I can keep this up much longer. It feels like I'm doing everything, and that it all depends on me. And in the middle of it all, God says, good night, Abram. And he puts Abram to sleep. Now, we are still waiting for the essence of the covenant to be ratified and explained and communicated, but before we get there, God reveals something else to Abram and, and that is that God's promises are often fi- f- uh, fulfilled through tribulation. <clears throat> Look at verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. He goes on to say in verse 16, they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The, the, the idea there, the Amorites, the, the people who are dwelling in Canaan right now, they, they, are, they are sinners, but God is being patient with them. Judgment's going to come, but not yet, not till the, the fourth generation. And then later on, when Israel comes back to this land, they will execute God's judgment upon the Amorites through warfare. I wish I had more time to talk about that, but We'll have to save that for another time. But, but the, the main idea here is that Abram is not going to see the fulfillment of God's promises in his lifetime. His offspring would not possess the land anytime soon. I mean, Abram's going to live and Abram's going to die. And even after that, it's going to be a long time. Even more shocking was the revelation that the offspring that God promised Abram would be slaves in another land, not in the promised land. You discover later on that this land is Egypt, and you can read about that in the next book over, in the book of Exodus. What's more, they would be in that land for 400 years, so the promise is not going to be fulfilled for a long time after a lot of waiting and a lot of suffering. Often God's timetable is very different than ours, isn't it? And that frustrates us, and that confuses us. But what the Scriptures are telling us is that while on the one hand God is always faithful to His promises, on the other hand, God is not rushed. What's more, we learn that the fulfillment of God's promises do not always come through sunshine and rainbows. In fact, sometimes God's promises shine the brightest in the backdrop of dreadful darkness. And it will not be until Israel's darkest moment, long after Abram is gone, when hope seems to be fully extinguished, that God shows up and says to Moses, I'm the God of Abram, your father, and I've heard the cries of my people, and the time has come to deliver them. 
His ways are not our ways. His timing is not our timing. God is assuring Abram that the fulfillment of his promises is a sure thing. It will happen, but it will come through waiting, through affliction, and through tribulation. And in fact, the Scriptures tell us that that is the normal pattern for the people of God. Remember in Acts 14, 22, you have Barnabas. He was known as the, the, the son of encouragement, the great encourager. And what was his encouraging word to the believers in the first century church? Just believe and you'll have your best life now? No. His word was, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And Acts 14 says that that word was actually encouraging to the believers. It gave them strength and assurance and hope. And why? Because sometimes, I think, when Christians are going through great difficulty and tribulation, they see it as a sign that something is wrong. Uh, they, they see it as a sign that maybe God is against them, or maybe they're on the wrong track. Scriptures are telling us that that kind of life uh, of waiting and suffering, that kind of life does not mean that you're on the wrong track. Instead, if you are on the right track, you can actually expect to experience solidarity with God's suffering people throughout the ages. You will experience waiting, and you will experience difficulty. But what the Scriptures are also telling us is that even though God's people are not spared from distress, they are most certainly preserved through it. Abram's offspring will be slaves for 400 years, but they will not be utterly destroyed. They will be preserved through their afflictions. Matter of fact, you read Exodus 1, the people of God are even thriving in the midst of affliction and persecution. They will be preserved, and on the other side of the affliction, there will be deliverance and blessing. God says in verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Again, you can read about that in Exodus. Where that's where God sends the plagues on Egypt, and eventually Pharaoh lets the people go. I'll bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now, this, this principle is true for all of God's people. We patiently wait through suffering and difficulty now, knowing that on the other side of suffering is glory. And what that should teach us, brothers and sisters, is that we should never, ever give up on the promises of God. No matter how dark things get, no matter how long it seems we have to wait, God's Word nevertheless is true, and it will come to pass. Waiting and suffering and affliction now gives way to glory later. Affliction is a reality for the people of God in a sin-cursed world, but it is not the end of the story. It's always a prelude to something better. The Scriptures are constantly reminding, of the, uh, reminding us of this. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That word there from Jesus is meant to encourage and assure us and, and strengthen God's people during intensely difficult times. Or you think about the Apostle Paul, who is no stranger to affliction. He said in Romans 8, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, 
The very worst thing that could happen to us in this life will one day be drowned out and eclipsed by the glories God has coming for every child of God. And it's a word that is essentially saying to suffering saints, you're going to make it. Don't give up. Don't give up on me. Don't give up on my promises. This thing that you are enduring will not ultimately destroy you. This waiting will not go on forever. I will preserve you through this. And on the other side, there's something incredible. And this pattern that God calls us to, this path to glory through the road of affliction, is no different than what he called his own son to. Our own Lord Jesus Christ was a man of sorrows, persecuted and afflicted. And yet Hebrews 12 says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And he was ultimately preserved through his affliction, and he's now seated at the right hand of God. The promise of of future joy and future glory was what strengthened Jesus through a time that was darker than anything that any of us have had to go through. That's the pattern of the Scriptures. Suffering now gives way to glory later. And that truth is designed to encourage us. God's plan is still moving forward. We're still on the right track. Things are still under God's control. This is normal. Don't panic. Don't lose faith. The story doesn't end here. Something better is coming. But I have one more observation about our text today. I think what we find at the end of this chapter is the heart of why you and I can have assurance in the promises of God, and that is that God's assurance to Abram is rooted in God. It's rooted in God. Abram has prepared this contract, this covenant, right? You, st- you, we, you still have these animal carcasses on the ground. We still have this bloody path that we need to deal with. And now the time has come to officially ratify God's promise through the cutting of a covenant. Verse 17 says that when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared. Oftentimes the Scripture, um, we see in the Scripture we see smoke and fire and light symbolizing the presence of God. We see something similar in the book of Exodus when God appears to Moses as a flaming fire in the bush. Later on, He manifests Himself on Mount Sinai in smoke and flashes of fire and lightning. And so, when we see this manifestation in Genesis 15, there should be no question that what's going on here is that God is showing up. The overlord is here. This is what Abram has been waiting for. And as you would expect, and you would expect, I should say, that based on what we know of these ancient covenant rituals, that God now would show up and He would make Abram pass through the animal pieces, right? God is the king He's the sovereign overlord. Abram is a mere vassal and a mere servant. Get up, Abram. Walk through it. When Abram was arranging those animal pieces, that's probably what he was expecting. He was going to have to go through these animal pieces and swear an oath of loyalty to the king and and essentially saying, God, if I'm not faithful to you, may I be destroyed. Now, if it went down that way, then essentially that would be saying that the fulfillment of all of these covenant promises would hinge on Abram's faithfulness. And by the way, that is how many people today seek assurance. They base it all on themselves. 
Everything rises and falls on their performance, on the strength of their faith, on their faithfulness, on their consistent holiness. That's not the way to assurance. That's the way to fear, terror, and constant anxiety. Because we all know in our hearts that we've already failed God. And there's absolutely nothing that we can do to make up for that. This is why Christians struggling with the assurance of salvation are some of the most miserable people on the planet. And if you're struggling with that, my heart goes out to you. And I hope that what I've been saying and what's coming is going to help. And and let's talk further after we're done here. And I'll try to help you further. But, but, But look here. God is not sending Abram through that bloody path alone. But neither do God and Abram go through the path together. If they went through together, then the fulfillment of the covenant promises would be a tag-team effort between God and Abram. You do your part, God. I do my part. But again, that option is no better than the first option. Because because, Because one of those parties namely Abram, will fail, guaranteed, because he's exactly like you. He's exactly like me. So the covenant is not ratified that way either. Instead, look again at verse 17. This manifestation of God appears in the form of smoke and fire, and what does God do? It says, He passed between these pieces. He passed between these pieces. And question for you. Okay, so while that's going on, what is Abram doing? Sleeping. He's not doing anything. God is doing it all. And what you see here is something that would have been unheard of. Here you you have the majestic king the overlord, the all-sovereign, and he himself is taking on himself this oath of self-malediction. God, by doing this, is saying, may I be cut in half. May I be bloodied. May I be mangled on the ground, butchered, food for the buzzards, if I do not keep my word to you and your offspring, Abram. That's amazing. He is is swearing by himself. There is nothing greater than himself. So he swears upon the greatest thing himself. And you get the point here? This all started, this, this whole issue started when Abram was asking for assurance. The question is, how will I know? What shall I base my hope and my assurance on? And God is saying, in this moment, you base it all on me. 100%. It's not 50% Abram and 50% God. It's not even 99% God and 1% Abram. It's all on God. Isn't that beautiful? I want you to get excited about this. It's beautiful, it's glorious, it's wonderful and magnificent. What God is like this God? This is crazy. God, in going through the animal pieces alone, is not only taking responsibility for himself to uphold the covenant, he's taking responsibility for Abram to uphold the covenant. God is promising that he will uphold both sides of the covenant unilaterally. He's essentially saying, 
I'm doing this, Abram, not you. Uh, What will happen will happen because of my doing, my power, my ability. The work is mine. The fulfillment of these promises is not based on you. It's not based on your ability. This is an unconditional covenant. I take it all on myself. Even if you are faithless, Abram, even if you stumble and fall, and guess what? You will. I take that on myself too. The covenant will be fulfilled, period. Verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant. Not literally in the Hebrew, it says cut a covenant. On that day, the Lord cut a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land. God is saying, I would rather destroy myself. I would rather suffer the curse of a covenant breaker than prove unfaithful to my people. Oh, and I'll bet with some of you there's some little gospel bells and alarms ringing off in your mind. Should be. Some of this is starting to sound familiar with some of you. Friends, from before the foundation of the world, God has had a covenant people that He has been determined to save. And He is faithful to save those people. And if you're a believer, you're one of those people. And so, and so you want assurance this morning? Are you asking the question that Abram asked, how can I know? Here's how you can know. Get your eyes off of yourself, off of your performance, off of your faithlessness, and turn your gaze to the God who would not only rather on a theoretical level suffer the curse of a covenant breaker than prove unfaithful to His people, but who actually did suffer the curse of a covenant breaker on behalf of His people. You do understand, don't you, that God knew when He was going through those animal pieces alone, He knew what that meant. In that moment, as that flaming torch is going through the bloody pathway all alone while Abram is off taking a nap, in that moment, God was essentially passing the death sentence on His Son. Covenant to Abram is a gospel covenant. He was promising Abram a land, that his descendants would dwell in that land as a nation, and in that nation and through those people would come the offspring of Abram, Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes, and Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ died, He hung on the cross to redeem us from the curse of the law. And why did He become a curse? Not because He broke His covenant obligations, but because we were faithless to God. We have failed to keep God's covenant law, whether that be uh, the law that God gave the Jews on Mount Sinai or the law that is written on the heart of every man, Jew or Gentile. And so the curse of the covenant rests on the head of every sinner. And as one teacher said, the marvel, the marvel is that God not only take the curse of the covenant upon Himself should He break it, that's Genesis 15, but that in the person of His Son, He takes our curse for breaking the covenant upon Himself and suffers it for us. That's Galatians 3. Jesus is destroyed for our covenant breaking. Why? Galatians 3, 
so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abram might come to the Gentiles. Not just Jews, not just the physical offspring of Abraham, but that the blessing might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Through faith in the gospel, Jew and Gentile become together heirs to the promises God made to Abram, which at the heart of those promises is salvation from sin and the blessing that comes through being in right relationship with God. And so the grounds for Abram's assurance and your assurance and my assurance that God will fulfill all of His promises is not based upon our performance or faithfulness, but on the faithfulness of the one who appeared as a flaming torch and passed through the animal pieces alone, and the one who died on the cross, butchered and bloody, taking the curse upon himself, the ultimate form of self-malediction, and he did it as a substitute for you and for me. And as Abram could in later times, when he struggled in faith, when he needed assurance, he could look back in remembrance of that covenant ceremony and remember that broken flesh and that spilt blood that reminded him that God would be faithful to him no matter what, so you and I can look to what Jesus did and we can consider his broken body and his spilt blood, which speaks a word of assurance to you that he is faithful to you no matter what. When we are faithless, the Scripture says, he is faithful. The basis for your assurance is the butchered body and blood of Jesus Christ. When you doubt, look to that. When you fear, look to that. When you are anxious, look to that. There is no greater sign of His faithfulness to do right by you than that. And He is faithful, even unto death. And He proved His innocence by not just dying for you, but being raised from the dead you, and He loves you, and He has saved you, and He has a purpose for you, and He will finish the job. For He who began a good work in you will complete it. Not may complete it, not well, maybe He will if you're good enough, or maybe, may, maybe He'll complete it if, you, if you're okay 60 or 70 percent of the time. No, He will complete it, period. And to strengthen our faith, And give us assurance, we like Abram are given a covenant sign. Indeed, we like Abram are given a blood covenant sign. We call it communion. And it's a replay of what happened when Jesus was betrayed. And on that night he was betrayed, he celebrated a Passover meal with his disciples. And he takes bread and he takes wine. And while God said to Abram, May I be like these butchered animals if I don't keep my covenant? Jesus was saying in this Passover meal, I am going to be butchered like an animal. My flesh will be torn for you, and my blood will be spilled for you because you all are covenant breakers. Jesus says something else interesting to his disciples. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. There is an exciting promise that's wrapped up in this covenant sign. When we take communion, it's more than us just looking back at what Jesus did. It's looking ahead. It's looking forward to something incredible to come. 
It's looking ahead to that great messianic banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb at the end of the ages where we and Abram and the saints of old, we will sit down at a great victory feast with the risen Jesus Christ. And unless Jesus comes back in our lifetime, we will be like Abram. We will die before seeing the total fulfillment of those promises. We'll be like Abram. Knowing our situation is only temporary, and, and, and we, like him, are looking forward to something more, and, and we can be assured it will come to pass. And the bread and the cup remind us of that. 